This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 4. Chapter 1. Browning in Early Life. Part 4. Paracelsus was, in all likelihood, Browning's introduction to the literary world. It was many years and even many decades before he had anything like public appreciation, but a very great part of the minority of those who were destined to appreciate him came over to his standard upon the publication of Paracelsus. The celebrated John Forster had taken up Paracelsus as a thing to slate, and had ended its perusal with the wildest curiosity about the author and his works. John Stuart Mill, never backward in generosity, had already interested himself in Browning, and was finally converted by the same poem. Among other early admirers were Lander, Leigh Hunt, Horn, Sargent, Telford, and Monckton Milnes. One man of even greater literary stature seems to have come into Browning's life about this time, a man for whom he had never ceased to have the warmest affection and trust. Browning was indeed one of the very few men of that period who got on perfectly with Thomas Carlyle. It is precisely one of those little things which speak volumes for the honesty and unfathomable good humor of Browning, that Carlyle, who had a reckless contempt for most other poets of his day, had something amounting to a real attachment to him. He would run over to Paris for the mere privilege of dining with him. Browning, on the other hand, with characteristic impetuosity, passionately defended and justified Carlyle in all companies. I have just seen dear Carlyle, he writes on one occasion, catch me calling people dear in a hurry, except in a letter beginning. He sided with Carlyle in the vexed question of the Carlyle domestic relations, and his impression of Mrs. Carlyle was that she was a hard, unlovable woman. As, however, it is on record that he once, while excitedly explaining some point of mystical philosophy, put down Mrs. Carlyle's hot kettle on the hearthrug, any frigidity that he may have observed in her manner may possibly find a natural explanation. His partisanship in the Carlyle affair, which was characteristically headlong and human, may not throw much light on that painful problem itself, but it throws a great deal of light on the character of Browning, which was pugnaciously proud of its friends, and had what may almost be called a lust of loyalty. Browning was not capable of that most sagacious detachment which enabled Tennyson to say that he could not agree that the Carlyles ought never to have married, since if they had married elsewhere there would have been four miserable people instead of two. Among the motley and brilliant crowd with which Browning had now begun to mingle, there was no figure more eccentric and spontaneous than that of Macready, the actor. This extraordinary person, a man living from hand to mouth in all things spiritual and pecuniary, a man feeding upon flying emotions, conceived something like an attraction towards Browning, spoke of him as the very ideal of a young poet, and in a moment of peculiar excitement, suggested to him the writing of a great play. Browning was a man fundamentally, indeed, more steadfast and prosaic, but on the surface fully as rapid and easily infected as Macready. He immediately began to plan out a great historical play, and selected for his subject 
Stratford. In Browning's treatment of the subject there is something more than a trace of his Puritan and liberal upbringing. It is one of the very earliest of the really important works in English literature, which are based on the parliamentarian reading of the incidents of the time of Charles I. It is true that the finest element in the play is the opposition between Strafford and Pym, an opposition so complete, so lucid, so consistent, that it has, so to speak, something of the friendly openness and agreement which belongs to an alliance. The two men love each other and fight each other and do the two things at the same time completely. This is a great thing of which even to attempt the description. It is easy to have the impartiality which can speak judicially of both parties, but it is not so easy to have that larger and higher impartiality which can speak passionately on behalf of both parties. Nevertheless, it may be permissible to repeat that there is in the play a definite trace of Browning's Puritan education and Puritan historical outlook. For Strafford is, of course, an example of that most difficult of all literary works, a political play. The thing has been achieved once, at least admirably, in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and something like it, though from a more one-sided and romantic standpoint, has been done excellently in La Aglan. But the difficulties of such a play are obvious on the face of the matter. In a political play, the principal characters are not merely men, they are symbols, arithmetical figures representing millions of other men outside. It is, by dint of elaborate stage management, possible to bring a mob upon the boards, but the largest mob ever known is nothing but a floating atom of the people, and the people of which the politician has to think does not consist of knots of rioters in the street, but of some million absolutely distinct individuals each sitting in his own breakfast-room, reading his own morning paper. To give even the faintest suggestion of the strength and size of the people in this sense of the course of a dramatic performance is obviously impossible. That is why it is so easy on the stage to concentrate all the pathos and dignity upon such persons as Charles I and Mary, Queen of Scots, the vampires of their people, because within the minute limits of the stage there is room for their small virtues and no room for their enormous crimes. It would be impossible to find a stronger example than the case of Strafford. It is clear that no one could possibly tell the whole truth about the life and death of Strafford, politically considered in a play. Strafford was one of the greatest men ever born in England, and he attempted to found a great English official despotism. That is to say, he attempted to found something which is so different from what has actually come about, yet we can in reality scarcely judge of it any more than we can judge whether it would be better to live in another planet, or pleasanter to have been born a dog or an elephant. It would require enormous imagination to reconstruct the political ideals of Strafford. Now Browning, as we all know, got over the matter in his play by practically denying that Strafford had any political ideas at all. That is to say, while crediting Strafford with all his real majesty of intellect and character, he makes the whole of his political action dependent upon his passionate personal attachment to the king. This is unsatisfactory. It is in reality a dodging of the great difficulty of the political play. That difficulty, in the case of any political problem, is, as has been said, great. It would be very hard, for example, to construct a play about Mr. Gladstone's Home Rule Bill. 
it would be almost impossible to get expressed in a drama of some five acts and some twenty characters anything so ancient and complicated as that irish problem the roots of which lie in the darkness of the age of strongbow and the branches of which spread out to the remotest commonwealths of the east and west but we should scarcely be satisfied if a dramatist overcame the difficulty by ascribing mr gladstone's action in the home rule question to an overwhelming personal affection for mr healy and in thus basing strafford's action upon personal and private reasons browning certainly does some injustice to the political greatness of strafford to attribute mr gladstone's conversion to home rule to an infatuation such as that suggested above would certainly have the air of implying that the writer thought the home rule doctrine a peculiar or untenable one similarly browning's choice of a motive for strafford has very much the air of an assumption that there was nothing to be said on public grounds for strafford's political ideal now this is certainly not the case the puritans in the great struggles of the reign of charles i may have possessed more valuable ideals than the royalists but it is a very vulgar error to suppose that they were any more idealistic in browning's play pym is made almost the incarnation of public spirit and strafford of private ties but not only may an upholder of despotism be public spirited but in the case of prominent upholders of it like strafford he generally is despotism indeed and attempts at despotism like that of strafford are a kind of disease of public spirit they represent as it were the drunkenness of responsibility it is when men begin to grow desperate in their love for the people when they are overwhelmed with the difficulties and blunders of humanity that they fall back on a wild desire to manage everything themselves their faith in themselves is only a disillusionment with mankind they are in that most dreadful position dreadful alike in personal and public affairs the position of the man who has lost faith and not lost love this belief that all would go right if we could only get the strings into our own hands is a fallacy almost without exception but nobody can justly say that it is not public spirited the sin and sorrow of despotism is not that it does not love men but that it loves them too much and trusts them too little therefore from age to age in history arise these great despotic dreamers whether they be royalists or imperialists or even socialists who have at root this idea that the world would enter into rest if it went their way and forswore altogether the right of going its own way when a man begins to think that the grass will not grow at night unless he lies awake to watch it he generally ends either in an asylum or on the throne of an emperor of these men strafford was one and we cannot but feel that browning somewhat narrows the significance and tragedy of his place in history by making him merely the champion of a personal idiosyncrasy against a great public demand strafford was something greater than this if indeed when we come to think of it a man can be anything greater than the friend of another man but the whole question is interesting because browning although he never again attacked a political drama of such palpable importance as strafford could never keep politics altogether out of his dramatic work king victor and king charles which followed it is a political play the study of a despotic instinct much meaner than that of strafford coulomb's birthday again is political as well as romantic politics 
in its historic aspect would seem to have had a great fascination for him as indeed it must have for all ardent intellects since it is the one thing in the world that is as intellectual as the encyclopedia britannica and as rapid as the derby one of the favourite subjects among those who like to conduct long controversies about browning and their name is legion is the question of whether browning's plays such as strafford were successes upon the stage as they are never agreed about what constitutes a success on the stage it is difficult to adjudge their quarrels but the general fact is very simple such a play as strafford was not a gigantic theatrical success and nobody it is to be presumed ever imagined that it would be on the other hand it was certainly not a failure but was enjoyed and applauded as are hundreds of excellent plays which run only for a week or two as many excellent plays do and as all plays ought to do above all the definite success which attended the representation of strafford from the point of view of the more educated and appreciative was quite enough to establish browning in a certain definite literary position as a classical and established personality he did not come into his kingdom for years and decades afterwards not indeed until he was near to entering upon the final rest but as a detached and eccentric personality as a man who existed and who had arisen on the outskirts of literature the world began to be conscious of him at this time of what he was personally at the period that he thus became personally apparent mrs brightell fox has left a very vivid little sketch she describes how browning called at the house he was acquainted with her father and finding that gentleman out asked with a kind of abrupt politeness if he might play on the piano this touch is very characteristic of the mingled aplomb and unconsciousness of browning's social manner he was then she writes slim and dark and very handsome and may i hint at it just a trifle of a dandy addicted to lemon-coloured kid gloves and such things quite the glass of fashion and the mould of form but full of ambition eager for success eager for fame and what is more determined to conquer fame and to achieve success that is as good a portrait as we can have of the browning of these days quite self-satisfied but not self-conscious young man one who had outgrown but only just outgrown the pure romanticism of his boyhood which made him run after gypsy caravans and listen to nightingales in the wood a man whose incandescent vitality now that it had abandoned gypsies and had not yet immersed itself in causistical poems devoted itself excitedly to trifles such as lemon-coloured kid gloves and fame but a man still above all things perfectly young and natural professing that foppery which follows the fashions and not that sillier and more demoralizing foppery which defies them just as he walked in coolly and yet impulsively into a private drawing-room and offered to play so he walked at this time into the huge and crowded salon of european literature and offered to sing the end of section four the end of chapter one